And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Monica Lewinsky. It's a name everybody seems to know. Many may associate it with the explosive affair she had with President Bill Clinton as a White House intern a quarter century ago. That story is being retold in a 10-part series on FX called Impeachment, an American Crime Story. But if you've been paying attention, you might also know Monica today as a powerful and eloquent advocate for the victims of cyberbullying, translating her own painful experience into action as a writer, film producer, and speaker. Lewinsky is using the lessons of her life and every tool she can find to fight online bile that destroys lives. Her new documentary, 15 Minutes of Shame, which premieres next week on HBO Max, explores this horror through the eyes of those who have experienced it. We talked about a lot of things in our conversation, including the moments during the height of the Clinton furor, during which Monica contemplated suicide. So let me say, if you or anyone you know are similarly grappling with suicidal thoughts, please reach out for help or call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Here's our conversation. Monica Lewinsky, it's so good to see you. This is the second time in our lives that we've been face-to-face. Do you remember the first time that we met? Of course I do. I had to I had to screw up the courage to come over and introduce myself. So <laughs> Yeah, you we were at a restaurant in New York. This was doing the during the 2016 presidential campaign. You came over and you were nice enough to uh, to start chatting, but actually you didn't introduce yourself at first. And you looked awfully familiar to me. And I was searching your face and you said I'm Monica Lewinsky. And then we continued to chat, chat about the campaign. You 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 shared some insights and then you turned to the guy I was having dinner with and you said, oh, you're not a reporter, are you? And I said, no, worse, he's Hillary, Hillary Clinton's pollster. <laughs> and you said, right. you said, oh, this is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what was, you know, what was so interesting to me about that was, um, and I can't remember if I shared that with you that night, but the, the only reason I actually forced myself to kind of come over and to say hi was because that morning I, um, 2016 was, was a complicated time for many people and in a very narrow way. If you, you know, kind of, a, a, if I take a solipsistic moment, it was complicated for me. Yes. And <laughs> I had been trying to think about, uh, you know, who, from whom could I get advice? You know, this was a, a, a really challenging period and a lot of things coming my way, uh, and not really knowing I mean, I had navigated it in 2008, but just wondering if there was a, a different way to navigate it in 2016. And you were actually someone who came to mind as a person who had, who's obviously not only smart when it comes to Washington, I'd seen your advocacy work on behalf of your daughter. So well, I also knew you. you were kind and compassionate. And I guess, you know, and sort of a, a tertiary point was around um, the fact that you had been an early Obama supporter in, in 2008. <laughs> meant that you're, you're you might be able to give me some unbiased advice. So <laughs> yes. let's put it that I way. I thought that, that was nicely put. <laughs> so yes. I followed you on Twitter that morning, realizing I think I had I couldn't believe I wasn't already following you. And I thought, well, maybe you'll 
follow me back and maybe I could have a conversation with you. I'm just, you know, I think we've all had those moments where we just are, are kind of desperately grasping for straws. And um, so the fact that I, I had had a shitty day, I took myself out to a nice dinner. And the fact that when I was leaving, I saw you that very same day, I, I thought, okay, this is meant you know, to universe. be. Huh? Yes, yes, exactly. The reason I raise it was because um, as you were walking away, I thought to myself, my goodness, she's 42 years old now or something. She's a she's like a, a grown up, a grown person. And yet she's had to live her life in certain ways, frozen in time. Very much. And uh, that made me profoundly sad, <laughs> to be honest with you, for you, because that's incredibly hard. So we're going to talk about You've participated in a, a new uh, sort of true crime series that's out now uh, about your experience. We're going to talk about that, uh, but I don't want to. But I want to talk a little bit about who you were before that and who you are after, uh, so that people get a fuller sense of you as a person. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about your 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 upbringing and your family. I know one of your grandparents came over from Germany, kind of a classic American Jewish story in the in the 1930s. Tell me a little about your family. I actually I have a really incredible sort of family history that way from location. So both of my paternal grandparents had fled Germany separately, didn't know each other. My grandfather had gone to El Salvador, where there was a diaspora of Jews, and my grandmother had got my Oma and Opa, my Oma had gone to London. And my Opa had been, happened to be on a business trip in London. They met, they married three weeks later. Mm. And, you know. So that's my, what I call a successful business trip. But Yes. You know, <laughs> yeah. I might look out for one of those soon then. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so they, they lived in El Salvador. They had three kids. My dad was the middle child, the only son. So he was born in El Salvador and, um, and raised there until he was 14. And then they came to the States and, um, you know, we still, my brother and I still tease my dad because he says things like marijuana and, you know, a cashier's <laughs> check and, hello, <laughs> you know, so, uh, uh, and then on my, my maternal side, my maternal grandmother was born in China to Russian my goodness. Jews, right. There was a diaspora of Jews even earlier than, than obviously world war two. And, um, so she, she was raised there and then came to the States, met my grandfather. It was kind of racy. My grandfather was her second husband mm. and for those times. And then they moved to Tokyo. And so my mom, my mom was born in the States, but my aunt, her younger sister, was born in Tokyo. So they lived in Tokyo. So kind of have that Asian, the, the yeah, well, China, you got the world covered influence. here, yeah, exactly. So um, you know, all sorts of dumplings at uh, at meals, but um, so and then they they came back to the states after my grandfather uh, passed away unexpectedly from a heart attack at fifty, and so their whole world changed. They lost everything um, and came back to the states. So it's I think that in an interesting way there's all of this um, history of sort of being an outsider and mm -hmm. yet belonging and yet also being an outsider, which I think mm -hmm. um, certainly kind of became a metaphor for, for later in my life. Yeah. Yeah. 
for different reasons. Your folks, uh, you, you lived in uh, Beverly, you grew up in Beverly Hills. Your father was an oncologist. He's still an oncologist. He's still, still practicing, practicing huh? 78 and he's still practicing. So, yeah, And how did he and your mom meet? They were both from San Francisco and I was actually born in San Francisco, but my dad was going to medical school in Irvine and my mom was going to college down in LA and they met on an airplane. And, you know, we joke in the family since they eventually divorced that it, you know, must have had some turbulence on that yeah. flight. But, well, um, well, let's stop right there because I want to ask yeah. about that because um, I know that from just what I've read and what you've said, that it was turbulent. Uh, for, and that must have impacted on you as a kid to watch this. And I, I tell, in full disclosure, I tell you this as someone who also grew up in a turbulent home. My mm-hmm. parents had a terrible relationship, split up. And it took me a really long time to actually figure out what a functional relationship looked like, like what a good relationship looked like. Maybe you can help me, David. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, but yeah, no, it's, you know, I think I'm not sure if you've had this experience, but I think, you know, I'm 48 now. And at this point in the amount of work I've done on myself, I've really gotten to a place where I've been able to see you know, you come to see your parents in context, you come to understand them as people who were raised and are a reflection of the environment in which they were raised by those parents, right? So my mom was 19. When she got married, my dad was 25. They both came from um, really different upbringings. And I think they they're both really good people. They're just fundamentally very different people. How did it impact on you? I think that there were a lot of things going on for me and and a lot of different traumas that happened when I was younger that I couldn't even see until the last six or seven years once my life started to change, which I know we'll get to later, but started to change a bit. So I I think that there were a lot of ways I acted out from things that were happening that I, I had pushed away. And I don't think my parents had been able to see. I think we looked for signs of different things in, in different ways at that time. But I know that, I mean, I was a very lucky kid and that I I never worried that there wasn't going to be a meal on the table. I always had a roof over the head. Oh yeah. You guys were well off. Yeah. Yeah. So, but at the same time, when I think back to my childhood, I don't remember a lot of moments of joy, you know, I mean, I see pictures and I'm sure, you know, my parents tell me these stories, but I, I think that I always felt that there was some like a cloud of angst that was kind of always over me. And, and my parents' relationship, it was hard. It was, um, I definitely wanted to be, you know, like so typical psychology. I wanted to be daddy's little girl. And my dad was raised by German Jews. And I think didn't, didn't quite know how to do that. And um, I really, in some ways, I feel like I couldn't actually understand the dysfunction or the difficulties until my parents actually got divorced. And that was when I realized I saw myself struggling to hold on to the fantasy, like the, of what I thought my family was or what I wanted my family to be, mm-hmm. you know, that there was this hope that we could always become that mm-hmm. if, um, and now that was, you know, now that was shattered when I was 14 and my, my parents divorced. So, yeah. You know, if you were interviewing my mom, she would tell you she was never strong enough to have such a strong-willed child. So she wasn't, she she couldn't really discipline me. (laughs) Yeah. You went to community college, I guess, for a couple of years after you left high school. Why why did you do that? 
you know, it was. I'm a big supporter of community colleges, so I'm not asking that in a. Yeah, Yeah, no, not in a pejorative way, of course. In the wake of my parents' divorce, I think that there was, there was a lot of tumult and I was with my mom most of the time. And I think that, you know, this is also, you have to remember, this was like the early, this is no, the late Mm eighties. And so this is a, a period of time where you have some psychologists seeing people, you know, it's, it's kind of gone outside that realm of your only really mentally unstable if you have a psychologist, but it's not as commonplace as it is now. And so I think we all didn't have the, I mean, I was only 14. I definitely didn't have the tools to navigate these things, but um, my relationship with my dad was rocky. And um, I think that there were, I look like my mom, I sound like my mom, you know, so I, I, I'm sure there were, there were times that he didn't even realize where the cross might have been. I'm going to ask a question that might be an impertinent question. Or, okay. But I know that you went off to Portland to Lewis and Clark College. You say you had a difficult relationship with your dad. You had a relationship with an older man in Portland, I guess. And then you had this sadly famous uh, affair. Right. And I'm wondering if any of this all blends together. If there, if does it make more sense in the context of your growing up and your relationship with your dad and so on? I don't think you need to be a psychologist to have, you know, asked those questions. I mean, this is a common for many of my friends who did not end up in global scandals. I think that this is a this is a common thing where we're almost always closer to one parent than another. We're more similar to one parent than another. And I think that the kinds of things you're saying there, there's definitely some truth to it. I think what, in some ways, what happened for me is I had experiences when I was younger, like when I was 14 and ones that were younger than that, that I didn't even know I compartmentalized and shoved away. We didn't even have language for it back Mm. then. And I think that actually some of those experiences probably influenced and impacted me more and impacted my relationship with my dad mm-hmm. more and therefore other men than sort of that, you know, neatly yeah, right. tied up package yeah. of, oh, I just have father issues. Yeah. Well, it begs the question, what what kind of experiences are you referring to? Or? Some it's, I think it was, it was referenced in episode four last night that I had had an experience at camp when I was 14 of, Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, I had a crush on an older counselor. Mm -hmm. So there, there is that, that thing there. I think that, um, and before there were conversations around consent and discussions that I found myself in a, um, situation where, uh, he had gone much farther sexually. I had an unwanted sexual experience Mm -hmm. where he, stopped when I asked him to stop, but technically I lost my virginity then. So, mm-hmm. so that was, I think that impacted then a lot of other that that's of course going to impact how one relates with the other men in their life right. and it impacts the choices. And then when I was um, 17, a young 23, 24 year old handsome at the time, or to me at the time teacher <laughs> who guy who had been my teacher briefly had kissed me at the end of a two hour conversation in a parking lot at high school at this high school. And, um, that then sort of began a connection. And the next time, like we sort of crossed a line, he was, I think then engaged and then got Mm. married Mm -hmm. and it, it moved from there. Mm -hmm. And so it was, um, you know, I had 
boyfriends here and there, normal boyfriends while I was growing up. And I think that there was definitely, I think you find that there, there are people who've had sexual boundaries crossed in their lives who just totally shut down and they just don't go anywhere near relationships. And then there are people who maybe make really poor choices because they're actually terrified of intimacy, mm. you know, because of whatever those experiences were, or they're looking for some kind of a, a validation in a different way. And, you know, I think with, with a lot of my choices, I, I was taught better, I knew better, and I made bad choices. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You went to Washington after you graduated from Lewis and Clark. You got a degree in psychology, which is uh, your sensitivity on these issues is clear. But um, you went to Washington. Why? What? I know your mom was there, but was there was there something about being in Washington at that time that drew you as a young person? Did you were you interested in politics? Were you interested in government? Nope. <laughs> I, um, you know, I, uh, so my plan was to get a PhD in forensic psychology and I had taken the GREs and scored well enough. And, but there was one section in the psych specific test that I didn't do well enough on to get into a PhD program. And I had been advised at the time of, well, if you want a PhD, it's useless to just go get a master's because if you go somewhere else, you'll have to retake a lot of the credits. So DC was a pit stop on my way to graduate school. You know, this sort of moment at the time of like, well, it can't, it, it can't hurt to have this on my resume. <laughs> and, well, it turns out you probably should have gotten a PhD for your studies in the pathology of Washington. That yes, alone should have. Yes. Uh, so my, you know, my essay, I, I wasn't, you know, I remember my housemates in Portland watching the War Room documentary, you know, in the living room. And but I, I wasn't particularly political. And in fact, my essay that I wrote for my internship, I talked about um, having been a psychology major where we study the mind of the individual and the White House is the mind of the country. I don't know. So that's why I think I ended up writing instead of just Xeroxing for my internship. I have no problem claiming where I earned something on my own merit, but we also had a family friend who is a donor who helped me get the internship. You're remembered as that person, that intern who had the Beret. Affair, <laughs> affair with the president, but you actually worked. You worked in the White House. You worked at the Pentagon for several years. Tell me about those experiences and what you took away from those. You know, in the, in the White House, when when I was hired, I worked in legislative affairs. And so that was um, really interesting to me and fascinating, even though I knew very little about the Hill. Um, I was working the correspondence section, but, you know, certainly we'll never forget the day of the State of the Union, and which I'm sure you, you remember these. Uh, oh, yes. I imagine you were there, even if you weren't working in the White House, that it's a very chaotic day of, you know, having to coordinate and organize different talking points and things which are going to the Hill. But it, it was, I mean, I worked every day. I had the job there at the Pentagon. I worked in, uh, I was the assistant to the spokesman, Ken Bacon at the time. And so, and at, and in that role, I 
he always traveled wherever the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Defense went. And when they went international, I went as support. It's as a staff. great experience. And yeah. so, yeah. So, I mean, I went to, you know, I was in Bosnia in 1996, a really incredible experience and traveled to places I never would have normally traveled to and military planes and went helicopters. And so, and, and, and it also provided me with the observations of, of Washington too, to see how really, you know, nowadays are the biggest commodity is attention, but in DC it's information and information is treated so differently. You know, at the White House, if I know something and you as my colleague don't know it, it makes me more powerful. At the mm -hmm. Pentagon, if I know something and you as my colleague don't, our boss could be up Schitt's Creek. And mm -hmm. it's, there's, there's just a lot less ego around information at the Pentagon. And it, it just, you know, it was always interesting. And I, I learned a lot that even things from, from Mr. Bacon of how he did press briefings that stayed with me of, you always have to put a, a statistic in context. You know, once you give people a number, it's like, but what does that number mean if you don't know how often it happens or doesn't happen or... The thing that's striking about this series, in, you know, Impeachment American Crime Story, on which you're an executive producer, is watching this young actress play you. She seems so young. And I was so young. I know. I young. I know. And it was painful. It's painful to see um, her uh, and you you sort of pining for this sort of ultimately unobtainable thing. Like, um, I mean, all of us who have of children can feel that. The president himself had a child three years younger than you, which makes the whole thing kind of un unthinkable. You know, a lot of people say, well, and you're very honest in this series, you were a pursuer and the pursued. You know, I think one of the things that, that certainly is complicated about a a 10-hour series when you're taking several years of interactions that happened and and condensing it and not and it's not just my narrative it's three women's narratives yes you know the um because i've heard from a few people who may, who maybe didn't quite catch because a, a number of scenes were were sort of nestled in a flashback that it was i guess i bristle a little at pursued because I, he began flirting with me yes, and I yes. responded, you know, and it was several mm -hmm. months of that flirtation that had gone back and forth. It was all inappropriate, right? So, I mean, inappropriate for me to- Yes, but you were back, 22 but, years old. Right, exactly. You were 22 and, years old. 22 more times inappropriate for him. You know, I mean, look, you, I think you obviously live in this, in this world of politics. I think we can very easily- imagine someone charismatic like president obama who you know a, a a girl smiles broader than she should or or you sense that energy and he smiles back and he moves on and he thinks ah, i still got it you know and 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 moves on and and whatever that is and there were millions of people like me you know yes everybody i mean especially because bill clinton was incredibly charismatic um yes and, and seductive, that, and seductive, yes, both with very. men and women. Look, I'll say parenthetically, he's one of the great political talents of, of our time. I look back at that, and I thought about it that night when you walked away. I look back at that, and I'm thinking, would we accept that today? Would we accept that today? I would hope not. I'm not 100% sure that, that we're 
quite as far from that if it were a handsome young democratic president who was quote unquote good to women mm-hmm. I, I i don't know but i would hope so we just had a, a case in new york where you live of a governor who had to leave office because of inappropriate advances he made toward young staffers and in fact um there were leaders of the times up movement who had to resign because they were they were cross pressured. He was someone who who supported their uh, mm-hmm. goals, public goals, and they were advising him on how to talk about his private behavior. Um, back then, you you know, uh, I don't know at twenty two whether you were or twenty four or five when this all came tumbling out in public, whether you had a chance to really ruminate about this. But clearly, um, there are a lot of people who were feminists who were proclaimed feminists and active feminists who did not support you. Absolutely. I mean, I really was, I was not supported by the left. I was not supported by the right. And I, and it was, it was a very painful and terrifying place to be, especially when you, when you put that under the umbrella of legal jeopardy, you know, so that this wasn't just a PR crisis for me. This, I, I mean, I literally was facing the grand jury was seated in the United States versus Lewinsky. Yeah. So it was challenging. Yeah. You were a pawn. Yes. You were a pawn in a much bigger thing, which was an attempt to purge the president. Yeah. I go back to, you know, there, there is that scene when, which where the whole series begins, where you're apprehended and put in a hotel room for questioning and you're threatened right away with crimes. Yeah. imprisonment <laughs> so, some of which i didn't even know I, I didn't even know what suborning perjury meant you know so um it, yeah it was uh it was terrifying it, it was really terrifying and um <sighs> yeah you've talked about that you looked at the window and thought maybe the best way out was to how much did you have to grapple with that I don't mean to keep intruding with my own story, but I lost my dad to suicide. So I'm very attuned to these issues and how much work we have to do to make sure that people understand what mental health is all about. Tell me about that. You know, I think particularly that day, it was, you know, you also have to remember when you when you put that moment in context, the previous several months had been very much... Uh, had been very tumultuous. So already my my emotional state, my mental health was wobbly um, at that point. And I just, I still loved the president. I um, didn't want this to become public. I mean, I, I went to extreme. Yes, I understand it's hard for people to get that because I blabbed to, you know, a handful of people, um, which ironically for me at the time, I thought I was being discreet. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, welcome to 22. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that I just, this idea of this becoming public, my dad is an upstanding doctor in the medical community, you know, just what this would do to my, the whole of my family, anybody who shared my last name. And I felt I just couldn't see a way out. And, and I thought um, that maybe, maybe that was the solution. And had even asked, you know, which is, this is also an interesting point of just, I had asked the OIC lawyers about 
what happens if I die? You know, and and as oh my goodness, yeah, as more of an adult now, I think back. How is there not a protocol like that's a point where you're supposed to bring a psychologist in, or you know something? How is that not a, a a breaking point in whatever you know their plan for prom night? was as they called the operation. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's awful. Yeah. So but but throughout, I mean, I I talk about it in in my TED talk I referenced, you know, um, and it it was that night when, you know, hours and hours later when I was finally after my mom came from New York and I was finally able to go home. It was around one in the morning. And um I was so distraught my mom made me shower with the bathroom door open. So I mean mm. th- there was that that concern. And throughout, throughout the investigation, there were a number of points where I was lucky my, you know, I eventually got a therapist. I didn't have a therapist at the time. And so I got a forensic psychiatrist a couple of weeks into the investigation effort after it had become public. And it was just, I think a lot of people who have ever had suicidal ideations find themselves in a moment where it's just, it's a moment of grace. Like it, it you know, two roads diverged in the woods and the forensic psychiatrist picked up the phone. And so I yeah. was, you know, pretty, pretty lucky. So Well, I hope anyone who's listening who is struggling with whatever yes. and is in that long, dark tunnel is listening to your words because there is a way out of the tunnel if you can just reach for that phone, if you can right. just reach or for that counselor. Or- exactly. Your crisis text line is a great, yeah. that's a great resource too. I think it's, um, I have. I think also sometimes around mental health, there's this, you know, we often hear stories where you might, somebody might talk about having a, a moment of not wanting to be here anymore and they make it through, but you don't realize that you can have many moments like that in your life, you mm-hmm. know, and that the, the only thing that is better about it is that each time you make it through, it gets a little easier to to try to find the lifeboat of I've gotten through this before I can do it again. You said you, you still loved the president and that's plain in this, in, in whatever way a young woman of 22 can love someone who yes. is the most powerful person on the planet. And people need to understand the pathology that surrounds the white house and that, you know, everyone is pining for attention from the president of the United right. States. Everyone is waiting for their phone to ring, hoping it's him. Yeah. Not, but, but when you're a 22-year-old and you're having an affair, I mean, that just compounds that. How do you feel about him now? How I feel now is just very distant. I don't wish anything negative to happen to him. I'm not bitter. I mean, I, I think he could have made different choices in so many different places. And I'm now thankfully at a place where I feel like I have a bit of a, a career and a future and I'm able to support myself. And at this point, it's really just about, these are the choices he's made. He'll come to the end of his life one day, like we all do, and he'll have to reconcile those choices, reconcile if he wished he had cleaned up those messes. So You pointed out that he said in an interview in 2004 when he was asked why he did what he did, why he got involved with you. He said, because I could. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of like if you were teaching a course on- Abuse of power. Abuse of power and so on. That would yeah. be a, you'd sort of start there, wouldn't you? Sure. I mean, I think the, I mean, I maybe I'd start it earlier, but I, I, I think that that was a, 
but that was a window. It was definitely a, it was a comment. It was definitely a comment that was reflective also of, of the times too, that he could say that and nobody batted an eyelash. so i i don't i don't i mean i don't know maybe because of you know we've also seen this that sort of parallel with trump that you know that there there there's certain people for whom their supporters will just overlook anything or maybe it's the time in which the social times in which we're living i'm not sure you saw you probably saw i'm sure you did that uh, interview he did for that hulu documentary about hillary clinton in which he acknowledged that it was wrong what he did, said it was sort of how he dealt with anxiety and said he felt awful that your life was you're branded by this one incident. But he's never expressed that to you. Is that right? Correct. Nor being an incredibly powerful person, even after he left office, it's a little empty to sort of say he felt awful about how my life had been derailed as if his actions hadn't contributed, you know, that's not to take away my own responsibility, my own choices, but there were so many moments. I think there were so many different ways publicly or privately, he could have made sure that my life got back on track, you know, and it was partially derailed. Again, I'm not putting all the blame on him, but partially derailed because of the way he chose to litigate everything in 98. Because of his strategy, he chose to be dismissive, to paint me as someone who just came in and surfaced him and allowed and really set the playbook and allowed for people to just desecrate my character. Again, my character was flawed, but I I certainly, you know, I, I, I think people have gotten to know me for my true self now. And I, while yes, I've matured and I've evolved, I am fundamentally, you know, people who've known me my whole life or, or from pre-98 would tell you I'm the same person, you know, I, at my, my, at my heart and my soul are the same. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. The inspiring thing about your story is not just that you survived, but um, someone said on one of these podcasts recently, you know, it's about taking pain and turning it into passion that becomes purpose. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that fits perfectly with your story because Mm -hmm. you drifted for a while after. Oh, yeah. And then you found your purpose in standing because you took terrible abuse. The internet facilitated it, magnified it globally. You, you know, even you went to Britain, you, you, you got a master's degree at the London School of Economics, couldn't really get work there because of this history. Came back to the States. Hillary Clinton was running for president. There were organizations that were worried that if they hired you, that that would somehow prejudice their ability to get grants. I mean, this thing just followed you. And the bullying aspects of it were ones that you had to endure. Constant comments about your weight, uh, about your Mm -hmm. character, and so on. Um, Tell me what the turning point was for you. And because you've now become such a force on this issue of bullying uh, and uh and the and the this sort of really ferocious, hideous side of of social media. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. Yes, I, I, I feel now I've been able to give a purpose to my past. You know, I like the passion part in the middle there of what you were saying too, but it's, um, there's this great, uh, uh, Andre Mulroe quote about, I think it's, she did not come back from hell empty handed. And I think that is definitely, that is great. Yeah. Yeah. And that definitely feels apt for me. You know, I think the turning point for me really came around 2010. It really was an incident that I, I was able to see through my mom's eyes what had happened, you know, her experience of what had happened to me. And it was through um, the story of Tyler Clementi, who yes. had been a, a young college freshman who had been um, captured, uh, um, videoed being intimate with another man and, and the threat of that on the internet and the sort of shame and ridicule that came with that for him. And he, uh, a few days later, died by suicide, jumping from the George Washington Bridge. And I, I could feel the anguish and the pain that my mom had for his parents and that fear uh, resurfacing of what she had felt for me. And my my dad and stepmom and stepdad had had all felt that as well for me. But that became a turning point because what I saw in that moment, it was sort of the, the intersection of emotion and a change in society where uh, I came to see, okay, this, this kid did nothing wrong. He hadn't made a mistake at all. And this is what was happening to him. And, and this was the proliferation of, this is where the internet had grown to, you know, from 98. I mean, I think one of the biggest changes too that the internet provided both of being both of being sort of permanent that it never went away instantly global and you could also anybody could get could get visibility which is something you didn't really have you know traditionally like you'd have to be approved to be published so yeah but um there's one other element which is no editors no time right. to reflect right from your id to the, the world Mm -hmm. and without any reflection. You know, Lincoln used to talk about he'd write letters in anger and then he would put them in his desk for a week mm. uh, and he would reread them in a week to decide if he really wanted to send the letter. Uh, now, we, you know, there is absolutely no, there's no editorial function. There's no, it's, and you get rewarded. Mm -hmm. you, you, meanness gets rewarded. You get clicks, you get likes for being mean, for mm -hmm. being for for being uh, uh, you know nasty to people. I executive produced a documentary that's coming out next week. Actually, fifteen minutes of shame. The the documentary is really is sort of an an outstretch from or output from from these experiences in that sense of this is where we are in the world now. You know, we talk to um, we talk to private people who became public because of internet harassment, whether it's, you know, mistakes they made or not. Um, and you really can see, you really get a sense of both, not only what it feels like to, to have that tsunami of hate and, and harassment coming towards you, uh, but also I think, you know, in, in some of the stories, they'll be familiar to people. And there's a sense, you, you get to understand what happens in context. You know, we don't, um, that's the other thing with the internet is it's sort of, it's, it's an incisive moment where we get this piece of information and 
we have a reaction and we, we get on some kind of a train and we pick up our stone and we just start pelting people. Right. And, and when you find out sort of a bigger story, you know, what's beneath the headline, it, it, you can, it can often be really surprising. Well, that's why conversations like this are important. You don't want to be defined by caricatures. We, we talk about the advances we've made, but we've also become even more tribal in our politics. Yes. So, uh, you know, you are an inconvenient truth, right, as it were. And those who were loyal to the president, you know, therefore had to be oppositional. Uh, and that would have been even more savage today. And we see it every single day. Uh, you know, and of course, Donald Trump popularized nastiness to and legitimated it. Sure. And and elevated the, the which existed before. But I think um, really sort of mushroomed the, the idea of misinformation and disinformation and the use of the Internet as a vehicle for those things. Um, you know, we're still seeing the the, the consequences of that. But it's. Um, I, I agree with you. We become more tribal. We become siloed more in our viewpoints, which have meant which have meant we we don't even have the channels or the ability to hear a, a different opinion and actually consider, you know, consider something different. And we consider anyone who lives outside our silo alien, and, yes. and maybe maybe even worse. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, no, it's it's so okay. What do we do about it? <laughs> yeah. Well. You know, I, I mean, the work I've done the last several years, I've really advocated for um, trying to bring more empathy and, and compassion to the Internet, I think, and, and this kind of idea of, of click with compassion and understanding our clicks have consequences. I think at this point with the with the documentary where we're really looking at and is is kind of trying to begin a, a bigger conversation. The, yeah, sure, people are talking about cancel culture, of course, but this really, in a, you know, it's only 90 minutes, but it kind of has this 360 degree look at, in a way, like what are all the different avenues that have led us here? How did we get here and where are we going? And I think that at this point, we really are, it's up to us. It is, I mean, it's up to us to demand the laws changing. It's up to us to hold social media companies responsible. Well, the, we do have to, though, point some fingers uh, because there are social media platforms that have done far too little and that are profiting from from all of this. Absolutely. Uh, and whose algorithms actually mm -hmm. are designed to transmit hate. And outrage, yes. And, yeah, and outrage, yes. Tristan Harris talks a lot about this. You know, he did the social dilemma and we interviewed him for our doc as well. But yes, I agree 100%. And we also have to point out we as, you know, consumers, did you walk away from Twitter? Did you, right. you know, I mean, I've, I'm not on Facebook very much anymore because of, you know, because of those reasons, but I haven't walked away from social media to make a sort of cultural, political, moral point. I'm still there. And so I think that is, you know, and it, it's the same thing, um, you know, it's that idea of uh, really, in a way, what we saw in 98, too, of people saying enough of this, enough of this scandal, but they kept buying it. They kept clicking yes. on it. And so that, you know, there, there is 100 yes. percent. I think that there are people who need to be held more responsible. We are in a mad scramble for clicks and eyeballs. And uh, the social dilemma reflected this. The, mm -hmm. the their, their business model is to addict us to these sites and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, appealing to the primal 
right. is a successful business model. It's mm-hmm. a horrific societal model. Uh, and there need to be, and, and, and I think we, we, we need to, we need to take that seriously because it's beginning to fray our democracy in ways that are, uh, you know, a part, uh, you know, we start with humanity, which is what, mm-hmm. what you've been talking about so, so eloquently, but our democracy itself is at risk if we don't, uh, if we don't think about these things. I agree. And also, I think I think alongside that or, or, or as part of that is also our our ability to think out loud, our ability to find our way in conversations and, you know, create change. We, you have to have some you know margin of error for for what you think or what you say or the words you choose or w- the stumbling that we do as we're learning. And so I think that that's also at at risk here too, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I uh, run an institute of politics at the University of Chicago. And when we founded it nine years ago, one of the, and it continues to be one of the, um, one of the guiding principles is the ability to have civil discourse and to talk, but also listen and to work through uh, th- these issues. Um, you know, it is harder and harder uh, to, and, and I, you know, my, strong admonition to young people is we've got to make the effort. We can't just go to battle stations right away. And, and we've got to try and hear each other, understand each other. I'm trying to inspire them to lean in and in the public space, including in government and in politics. What would you say, (laughs) you know, to them having had the experience you had, would you, would you discourage them from 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 taking these jobs or or uh because you you know you obviously were singed by it as well i would probably falsely encourage them to take it because we need smart people and we need passionate and dedicated people to to step into public service and and in government and these things i i think for me it's just wrapped too much in regret yeah you've been involved in a lot of projects relative to your own experience uh over the years I guess my question is, as traumatized, I mean, I was watching that last night and I was feeling for you. Why participate in these projects? It feels like you're re-traumatizing yourself over and over again. Because that's how you are able to help shape the narrative. You know, it's how you hold on to your narrative. I lost my narrative. My narrative was stolen and then I lost it by trying to recede, trying to run away from everything that happened for many years. And part of the work I had to do was accepting that I was going to have to integrate my past. And I also think, too, that it's this this story has stayed in the cultural zeitgeist for over 20 years. Let me say it another way. Had this story somehow miraculously been erased from history and I still lived with the experiences, I would not be out here talking about them. You know, but the truth is, is that the Clintons stayed in the spotlight, in the political spotlight for many, many years, which was part of that, um, part of, you know, sort of kept the story alive in different ways. And um, and I think that that this is just we're also now living in different social times. This story is about real people and I'm involved in it, but it's also about something bigger. It reflects something bigger in our society. And so as our society changes, there are different ways that this story feels relevant. So I've, um, I'm 
so grateful. I have a first look deal at 20th television now, and I'm, I'm embarking on this career as a producer and looking at stories that are, um, you know, are in part shaped by my lens of experiences, but are not about me, but I may, I, I may revisit, you know, I also hear from people, you, you probably hear this too, from like, I, I remember a few months ago, you wrote a really moving op-ed and you make yourself vulnerable. You pour yourself onto a page or into a project and it hurts and it's hard, but you hear from people how much it helps others. It helps them either feel less alone. It helps show them that there's a different way. And so there's meaning to that for me. You know, it's about other things too. I'm not a totally selfless person. So, but you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. By the way, let me ask you about the the title of it, Impeachment, American Crime Story. The first series they did was about the O.J. Simpson case. The second was uh, about Versace. Gianna Versace yeah. murder and the, 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 the young man who went on a killing spree. The crimes were fairly obvious in those cases. Who's the criminal in this drama? One of the things that I, you know, that was so compelling to me about working with Nina Jacobson and Brad Simpson and Ryan Murphy on this series you know the anthology they've created yes is that at the heart of the american crime story anthology it is about what crimes we the american people commit what do we what you know where do we play a part in these stories that we come and look at you know we gawk like we see a, a car accident and um so that's you know i think there's i don't know that there are any heroes in what happened in 1998 you know it's there and um but i think that is that's part of what it is and what i hope what i hope people will take away is is really a few things one is i hope it impacts people emotionally so that this doesn't happen to another young person again that we don't you know it's of course young people and older people are going to get into inappropriate relationships i'm not i'm not saying that i'm not that naive but this idea that so much was rested, so much of the blame and shame was rested on my shoulders. And then the other is, you know, the avenue that was interesting to me about getting involved with this project was really telling the story through the, the three women who were on the margins of power, yes. you yes. know, and how the story was told. And so I, I hope that what also settles in, and we're, we're, we're seeing this more and more in society from so many different ways, and um, which is, that we consider the less powerful, often the woman or someone from a marginalized group, we consider their perspective, we consider their role, we consider them as um, being affected by what's happening. And, yeah. and I, hope, I hope that sort of infects the culture a little bit too. Hubert Humphrey once said, there are two clubs, there's the would have club and should have club, and they're the largest clubs on the planet. And neither <laughs> are worth, he said, neither are worth belonging to. Uh, yeah. So you must think at times what your life would have been like if you had just walked away, if yeah. this had never happened, if it had never become public. Tell me about that. What, what would, what, what, how do you imagine your life had you not had to carry this burden? Right. Well, I think that, you know, I've, I've had to confront it in, in so many different ways because of, of you know, most of my friends are my age and, you know, to watch them go through these normal maturation milestones of falling in a mature love and getting married and having children. And that was what I wanted. I think that 
I would have liked to have had a, a quieter, more normal life. So for now, I'm, I'm grateful that I've got purpose and I'm grateful that I've got movement in my life. And it seems like there's kind of, I don't feel like the, the political history and the people who, who are part of that political history, that they've receded in some ways on the political stage, that it's just not, their thumb is not on the scale of me for my mm -hmm. future. You know, yeah. if that makes sense. No, it does. But from what you're saying, for all the extraordinary things that you're doing now to use your experience and your platform, it sounds like you'd gladly trade it if you could. For sure. <laughs> for a more normal yeah. life. Yeah. And I and I get that that may sound it it may sound contradictory to some people of like because it's look I, I understand it's hard to sometimes understand these bigger bizarre scenarios that we just haven't lived in if it's especially if it's in different worlds of like well then why don't you just go be a private person and it just i tried it didn't work you know yeah. everybody in the world knows the name monica Lewinsky. it's hard to be private well look uh, hopefully more and more people will know you for the causes that you're championing now yes. uh, i hope people will watch 15 minutes of shame and more than that i hope people will act on what they see and if so, you will have made the world a better place. That's no small thing. Monica Lewinsky, it's great to be with you. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.